Uh, This morning, we want to turn our attention to James chapter number 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Once you have the passage, you can let me know you're there by saying amen. In verse 1, simply declares, my brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are, you, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which we are called? If you, were really fu- if, you were, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Uh, for whoever keeps the law but fails in one part has become guilty of all of it. For he who, for he who said, do not, kill a mo- do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are, be, who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Uh, just for a few moments this morning, I want to uh, share uh, from the subject title, uh, The Problem with Partiality. The Problem with Partiality. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for um, what our eyes have seen and what our ears have heard and what our hearts have experienced. God, it does my my heart good to be with our church family. It does my heart good to be able to um, see our our people, people who we do life with, people who we are growing with. God, help us, Lord God, to, to fulfill the royal law. God, to really love one another. God, help us to see how we are all partial how we all make value judgments based upon outward appearances. God, but help us see the solution to that problem. That's really loving others as you've loved us. God, let our lives be a response to the love, the grace, the goodness, the mercy, and the forgiveness that you've given us. God, we're asking that you would help us come to a place in our lives. God, where we will be able to extend to others what you've extended to us. God, help us see that as a reality this morning. We love you, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. In the March 6th, 1994 post of the Christian devotional, Our Daily Bread, they chose to highlight a story from the life of Gandhi. In Gandhi's autobiography, he wrote that during his days as a student at a Christian primary school, he began to read the gospel. And at one point in his life, he really began to consider 
And in his words, he began to pray about converting to Christianity. He believed that the teachings of Jesus could find a solution to the caste system that was dividing the people of India. So one Sunday, he decided to attend services at a nearby church so that he could investigate the claims of Christ for himself. When he entered the sanctuary, unfortunately, an usher refused to give him a seat, and the usher suggested that he go worship with his own people. Gandhi left the church uh, frustrated, and he never returned. Reflecting on the experience, he concluded, if Christians have a caste system, I might as well remain a Hindu. Now, I don't know what was really going on in Gandhi's heart or really what was going on in Gandhi's mind, but here's what we do know. There should never be a caste system in Christ. God does not place value on people based upon race or gender or financial success or education or marital status or even your ability to have children. As believers, we must understand that we are beloved by God, meaning we are deeply loved and cared for by God. Pastor, we read this morning in Ephesians 1, it's, a, it's amazing because I was going to read it myself, but I'm thankful that somebody was in the spirit, Brother Greg, um, chose to do that, that, that passage this morning because it reminds us that, that God made a decision to express his love uh, for us before the foundation of the world, which means before you and I ever committed a sin, God made a decision to forgive you of your sins. Before we told the lie, before we took the drink, before we answered the phone call or the text, before we did anything outside of God's will, God declared that he loves us and he cares for us. And God displays his, his, his lavish love for us by dying on the cross for our sins. God's love for us is so amazing that he made a decision to accept you just how you are. Um, a couple weeks ago, we, we went out to the community. Actually, last week, went out to the communities, and on Wednesday night, I met a young man um, at the apartment complex we've been praying for. Side note, um, the first time we went, we had three people pray to receive Christ. This past Wednesday, we had four people pray to receive Christ, which is another reason why we are called to go out to share the gospel. But in one of the conversations that we had, one of the gentlemen said, I, I really want to believe. So I really want a relationship with Jesus, but I just believe I want to go back to my old ways. And I had to tell him, my brother, that's why you need Jesus. In his mind, he thought that he was going to clean himself up, that he was going to change his ways, that he was going to get things right. When in reality, you cannot change yourself. That is why you need a savior. At our core, we all have the same need. That's a savior. And once we receive the Savior, we must understand that there is the same and right standing before the Lord. That's why Galatians chapter number 3 verse 25 through 29 declares, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus when you are one of uh, Abraham's offspring. When we place our faith in Christ, we receive the same spirit from God, and we also receive the same inheritance 
from God. God says, when you are my son or my daughter, you are beloved. That means that we are, uh, we are God's purchased possession on the earth, and that one day when this heart stops, when this body no longer begins to exist or no longer is able to exist, we will go to heaven to be with God for eternity not based upon anything we've done, but based 100% on what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. That's true of us today. Here's what's also true of us. Because we are on this side of eternity, though we have been forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future, we still struggle with sin on this side of eternity. It's easy for us as, as human beings to struggle with the issue of partiality because we are prone to base value upon people or to evaluate people based solely upon outward circumstances and situations. It's easy for us to, to operate in such a way where we are saying this person is good, this person is bad, this person is right, this person is wrong, not based upon anything else other than my preconceived notions and ideas that I have concluded in my own head. In chapter number one, James speaks about trials and temptations in a very general way, but in chapter number two, he begins to address a specific issue that was present in the first century church, and in addressing the issue in the first century church, I do believe he's addressing an issue that is still present in the contemporary church. James addresses the problem of partiality, and he begins by telling us about the superficial nature of partiality. Verse number one says, again, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold faith in, the, in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. As we begin our discussion on partiality, we need to understand that uh, this is not an issue of lack of information. This is not an issue of people who had the wrong information. When James is speaking, he's specifically speaking to a group of believers. He's not speaking to a nominal group of Christians. He's speaking about people who have placed their faith in the Lord. The text literally says that they did not place their faith just in Jesus or just in Jesus Christ. The scripture tells us that they placed their faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. They had the right conclusion about Jesus, but they had the wrong conclusion about how we are to operate once we become a part of God's family. When you look at the text, we see that they had concluded that Jesus was worthy of glory, but they also had concluded that certain people were worthy of prejudice and segregation even within the church. We must always remember, as, as, as a body of believers, as a church, that is very committed to the scriptures, that it's very easy to have the right doctrine while having the wrong application of the doctrine. If, if you don't understand this, the, 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 to me the most glaring example of how we do that is how the evangelical church has made a commitment to protect life inside of a womb with also making a commitment to protect life outside of the womb. We can't protect the fetus and not protect people. 
We cannot uh, march and vote based upon protecting uh, uh, abortion or trying to abolish abortion while not also voting and protecting and making sure that we protect people because people have value from God. So when James opens up chapter number two, he begins to move from general trials to specific temptations that we deal with every day. We consider chapter number two, uh, chapter two, verse number one. We need to be reminded how Jesus essentially treated people. Jesus was not simply uh, one who saw uh, the outward appearance, but Christ was one who looked at the heart. He was not impressed by social riches or social status. He was not impressed with people because they had a certain amount of money. When you look at the record of Jesus, you even see the poor widow gave her might and he gave greater praise to her than he gave the Pharisee who gave riches. When he looked at people, he saw the potential in their lives. When he saw Simon, he saw a rock. When he saw Matthew, who was a publican, he saw a faithful disciple. When Jesus was speaking at the woman at the well, he spoke to her because he understood that she was going to reap a tremendous harvest for the gospel, even though she was presently living in sin. For us, we are prone to judge people based upon their past and not remind them of the future that they have in Christ. One of the greatest things about Jesus is that he was truly a friend of sinners while also having the ability to, to disapprove of their sin. He was not one to compromise when it came to sin, but he was one to show compassion in the midst of people's sin. When you look at our text this morning, one of the ways we all sin or have a tendency to sin is because we are constantly struggling with what we think is most comfortable and most convenient. We want to live in such a way where we are not challenged. We don't want to live in such a way where we are not uncomfortable, where we have everything kind of tailor-fit to, to the way that we want it best. All of us this morning, if we're not careful, we will be guilty of drifting culturally. We will be, we will be guilty of drifting in terms of our partiality because drifting, here's the hard part about drifting. Drifting only requires that you stop making effort. Drifting only requires that you stop uh, rowing in the boat. When you stop, when you stop making effort, when you stop uh, making, making God's uh, word a priority, it's easy to drift into things that will cause you to dishonor God. And one of the ways we do that is we participate in partiality by making judgment calls on people based solely upon um, their outward appearance. Partiality, I want to say this very clearly, partiality is not just about preference, okay? In life, it is 100% okay for you to have preference. There's, there's some people in the room who you may, you may prefer Zaxby's over Chick-fil-A. You're probably not a Christian, but that's your <laughs> preference, right? This morning, you, 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 may prefer, you may prefer Pepsi over Coke. Your taste buds probably are wrong, but that's okay. P partiality is, is not just having a preference. I want to say this very clearly. But partiality is when you move past preference and you move into prejudice. Prejudice causes us to value people based upon race or money or some other conviction that is unbiblical. For instance, racism 
is a value prejudice based upon the color of a person's skin. Classism is a value prejudice based upon the amount of money people make. Culturalism is a value preference based upon socioeconomics. And as we continue to read, we got to simply understand that, that, that partiality is not just a preference, but second point, partiality is a sin. Verse 2 says, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you sit over there or you sit at my feet, you have not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has God not chose those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? When you read verses 2 through 5, it is very important for us to note that the poor man was not kicked out of the church, okay? That he was not barred from hearing the word. He was not barred from being a part of the assembly. He was not barred from, from participating in worship, but his options were limited. The rich man and the poor man were segregated. As I read the passage and as I studied this morning, I, I could not help but to think back uh, to the times in this country and in, in this world well, we were, we were able or we were forced to operate based solely upon uh, racial preference. Not long ago, black folks could come to church, but they couldn't sit with the other folks. They had to sit in the balcony. At the time in our country where people could ride on the bus, but they had to ride on the back of the bus, right? Where people could drink from the water fountain, but they had to drink from the other water fountain. A t there, were, there, there are times not too long ago when people were based, when people were judged and evaluated based solely upon their outward appearance and not the character of their lives. When you think about it, it, it this is why I love our church, right? I, I love our church because we preach the gospel and because we're doing what God's called us to do. But I, I love our church because when I look around the room, uh, this is not a segregated church. Like right now, facts, the most segregated hour in our country is the, the church hour. Like right now, our country is more divided than we will be all week, and it blesses my heart to look around this room and see a room that reflects our community because that's what God ultimately desires. Amen. Amen. So, so when you look at the text, James is challenging us to never make a statement about a person's value based solely upon their outward appearance. Uh, over the years, I need to say this, this passage has been misinterpreted. Um, some people have interpreted it uh, as if the Bible is condemning those who have money. That's not what the passage is doing. Uh, those, those who have a couple coins in your pocket, you can just say amen. <laughs> what the passage is doing is, it's not condemning the rich person or the poor person uh, the, the passage is not saying if you have a nice suit or a nice home or money in the bank that, that that's something to be condemned for. It's not saying if you have a degree or a nice job uh, that that's bad. 
The passage is not condemning the rich person. Neither is the passage condemning the person in poverty. James does not chastise a person for not having their Sunday's best. Uh, He he doesn't critique the man uh, for his inability to make an offering. Uh, He says that both are good because both both are in a good place because both are in need of the gospel. Both are in need of the gospel message. Uh, It's important for us to see that one is not condemned over the other. One is not favored over the other because both are in the same exact place. Uh, I love the passage because it's, it's, it's a reminder that, that, that the rich person and the poor person need the same message. The weak person and the strong person need the same message. The person this week who has or will vote for Brian Kemp and the person who's voting for Stacey Abrams need the same gospel message. It's easy for us to get to a place where we think that they need it more than us, but this passage is reminding us that they were both in need of the same message. Now, here's the problem. In verse 4, it's communicating that they made a value judgment that was unbiblical. Uh, Matt Chandler, this week I listened to a sermon that he preached on this passage, and he says that the why is always more complicated than the, than the what. He says, if you're talking to your kids and you tell your kids, do not play with fire, right? Immediately you want to respond by, and if your kid asks you why, you immediately want to respond with, because I said so, right? But, but the why is important because you want to protect them. You want to keep them from burning down the house. You want to keep them uh, from making a fire. The why is really important. So I need to tell you the why in the text. The what is partiality, but the why is when we, sh- when we show partiality in the church, we are communicating in a way that reveals that we do not understand the gospel. When you show partiality to others, when you make value judgments to people based upon solely on their outward appearance, what you're doing is you're communicating that you do not understand the gospel and you're communicating in a way that dishonors God. When we get to a place in our lives... When we, get forget, when we get forgetful and we lose sight that we all need the same grace, we all need the same forgiveness, when we get to that place in our lives, it's easy for us to no longer extend the grace to others that God has extended to us. It's easy for us to think that because we, we're not uh, sinning as bad as we used to sin, that we're not struggling as, when we're not struggling as bad as we used to struggle, it's easy for us to get self-righteous and begin to look down on people because they have different struggles than us. But in reality, we all have the same need in Christ. Uh, tell this story. When I was in high school, uh, we had a pretty solid football team. In my mind, I was the best player on the team. In reality, uh, I was not. Um, Fernando played with uh, one of my teammates in high school in Tennessee. His name was Tony Brown. Uh, Tony was, he was the lead dog on the team. He left high school. I signed a D1 scholarship, played in the NFL for a long time. And when I think about it, the only guy on our team who was really special was Tony. He was the best player on offense. He was the best player on defense. And when teams came to play against us, the plan was not to stop Thomas. The plan was to stop Tony. (laughs) Seriously. I, I tell that because how I think about Tony And how I think about my role in the team is how I can think about my role in the church. I can get to a place where I think that I'm the lead dog. I can get to a place in my life where I can begin to think that that I'm the star of the show, that I'm the one who makes this thing roll. I, I can get to the place in my life where I forget 
that, that Christ is the one who's the lead. Christ is the one who is the point. Christ is the one who makes our team special. He's the one who makes the thing go. And when you look at our lives, when, you look at, when I look at my life personally as a believer, not just as a pastor, as a believer, i got to always be reminded that, that, that what makes me special, what makes me significant is not what I do or I don't do. What makes me special or significant is my relationship with Christ. If, if we're wondering what God thinks about his team, I want you to go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. 1 Corinthians 1 almost gives us a scouting report of what God says when he chose his team. 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring forth the things that are so that no human might boast in the presence of God. Like you and I are never going to be in a position where we have an opportunity to boast. The only thing that we have to boast in is Christ. And since God did not have a criteria um, that he, he had to go through to invite me to be a part of his family, how selfish and unbiblical it is for me to think that I've got to give people a certain criteria to be a part of God's body. To think that you got to have a certain level of education, you got to have a certain look, you got to have a certain conversation, you got to do certain things to be a part of God's family. That is totally wrong. When you look at the text, God's invitation is an invitation that is based solely upon grace. That God says, I'm going to give you what you do not deserve and I'm going to call you to extend to others what they do not deserve either because of grace. So first we see the superficial nature of partiality. We see the sin of partiality. And thirdly, we see the solution to partiality. Verse 8 says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. What I love about the Bible is the fact that the scripture certainly reveals to us our sins. If, if we're honest, sometimes we can get overwhelmed with the reality of our sin. Sometimes we can, we can open up the scriptures and be, be discouraged because it's like, man, like, God is just like, just, just striking me down. And God is just like revealing me all these, all these different sins. As we live this life, it's honest. If we're honest, we probably have more days in Romans 7, struggling with sin than we have in Romans 8 where we're victorious in our living. And since the Bible directly addresses my sin, it's easy for me to get to a place where I begin to think, I am what I am, I'll never change, I'm always going to be this way. If you've ever thought that, I want to encourage you that that is a lie from Satan. What I love about the Bible is the fact that God is honest about the issues of my sin, but God is also honest about the solutions to my sin. When you look at the text, when it says the, 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 the royal law is to love your neighbor, that is the solution to partiality in the church. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. That is how we fight against partiality in the church. Some may ask the question, well, why 
why does the passage describe it as the royal law? Well, first of all, it's described as the royal law because it was given by the king. The kingdom of kings, God the Father, commanded the law of love. God the Son reaffirmed the commandment to his disciples, and God the Holy Spirit reminds us of the commandment of love that we should love one another. Romans 13.10 also tells us that, that love rules all other laws. Love fulfills the law. We must remember that Jesus uh, told us very clearly that the world would know us not by our buildings or our budgets, not by the kind of style of worship, not by how many people are in the service, but Jesus told us very simply that the world would know us by our, lo- by our love for one another. One of the issues that we got to deal with in the church is that there is so much hatred in the church for one another. Like there's so much animosity towards each other. Like sometimes I... I if you've been here for a while, you know I love to stir the pot up. I just enjoy a really, really good argument. It just brings life to me sometimes. <laughs> just forgive me. I'm a sinner. But the reality of it is we always got to love each other. Like, we can disagree. We can have different points of opinion. Like, there are things that you and I will never disagree on, but it should never get me to a place where I hate you as my brother and my sister. We got we to feel the weight of... The royal law has two sides. It has a vertical side that is expressed to God, but also a horizontal side that expresses itself to others. 1 John 4.20 is one of the most, in my mind, one of the most applicable and weighty verses for the church today. It says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. I'm saying it again. If anyone says, I love God, but I hate my brother, he is a lie. I'm going to say it one more time. If anyone says, I love God and I hate my brother, you are a liar. We got to feel the weight and responsibility to love one another because that is what God has called us to as Christians. I really do believe once I have tasted and experienced the love of Christ, then that love should pour out to other people. Verse 10 lets us know that this is not a small issue. This is a big issue. Verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who has said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not, if you, if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the whole law. The passage is saying, if you show partiality, you are committing the same sin as adultery or murder. Before I give the uh, application, I want to close with this illustration. Some of us can read this passage and almost think like, oh, T, that's a little heavy-handed this morning, bro. Like, is, is me showing partiality that significant? Like, is me favoring people over other people that important? Like, I get it, bro. Like, I get it. Like, God wants us to love each other, but I hadn't killed anybody, hadn't raped anybody, hadn't murdered anybody. Like, that's really not that bad, bro. Like, you know, if I, if I look at the scale of sin, like this is kind of a minor league sin, not like a major, major sin, right? If you're thinking that way this morning, I want you to think about it this way. And let's say you are uh, climbing on a cliff and you have a chain with 10 links in it. And the chain with 10 links in it is keeping you from falling to your death. And one chain in the 10 link 
like, like how important is one of the chain in the link? Like how important is one of the chains individually in the link? It's pretty important. Like nobody's going to say, well, you know what? I'm about to go climb Mount Everest, and I got nine good links. But I got one that's a little shaky, right? Like if, if the one link breaks, then I fall to my death. If one link is missing, then I'm not going to be safe. And spiritually, if you think about the commandments, if you think about God's law, God's standard, yes, we are to a place in our life where you probably will not commit eight of the ten, right? You may even get to a place in your life where you, you're nine out of ten. But even if we break one part of God's law, that means we are separated from God for eternity. Even if we break one of the commandments, even if we do one part that's wrong, the scripture is telling us that we are totally separated from God and we are in need of a savior. So here's my application this morning. Christian, come on back up. When we think about the passage, when you think about the scriptures, there are three things that I really believe we are called to in our response. Number one, we are called to move past super assessments of people. It, it, it's so easy for me um, to, to judge a person, to size them up based solely upon the outward appearance. It's easy for me to allow my own prejudices, my own preferences, and my own sin struggle to cause me to project thoughts on people. And that's a sin. That could be black to white, that could be rich to poor, that could be white to black, that could be Asian to Latino, that could be educated to uneducated. It doesn't matter what side you're on. The reality is we got to move past valuing people simply because of their outward appearance. And secondly, we also need to move past taking sin lightly. Anytime we sin, it causes separation from us and God. The scriptures tell us very clearly that whether it's partiality or whether it's covetousness or whether it's gossip, like these things are big things. And I think that I used to believe that as a Christian, you know what? Hey, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that bad. I'm not killing anybody. I'm not, I'm not stealing anybody's money. I'm not, you know, I'm not robbing anybody. I'm not, you know, touching anybody inappropriately. I'm thinking those things. And essentially what I'm doing is I'm making excuses for sin in my life. And rather than making excuses for sin, the scripture tells us that we need to deal with it directly. One of the greatest passages, well, one of the passages that has, that has blessed my life more so than any other is 1 John chapter number 1. It speaks about when we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us. And when we're prideful and we're hard-hearted and we, we want to withhold things because it's not that bad, we're creating more separation between us and God. So we have to move past superficial assessments. We have to move past taking sin lightly. And then thirdly, we are to rest in God's solution to partiality. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. One of the, one of the things about um, a football team or any sports team is that the prosperity of the team it's always more important than the prosperity of the person, right? We won a game yesterday. Let's say, and I don't know if you saw the game, DeAndre Swift had an amazing touchdown. He ran for like 80 yards, right? Let's say if he had had the 80-yard run and we lost, 
it would not have mattered because the team lost. And in church, we can, we can, we can be like the selfish athlete and think, well, I'm good. My stats are good. Like, I, I didn't drop the ball. Like, I made the tackle. Like, I, I showed up. I did what I was supposed to do rather than understanding that we all need to prosper together. God, I need Stacy to grow. I need Clinton to grow. I need Sean to grow. I need Dante to grow. I need Fernando to grow. Why? Because we need to be strong together. doesn't matter if I'm strong or if you're not strong. we got to be strong together as a family. So partiality says, I'm going to love and pray for your family as much as I pray for my family. Moving past partiality says, I'm going to support you and root for you like I'm rooting for myself. I'm saying this about Keturah. When she won, my wife and I were so excited as if one of our kids won because we love her and care for her. And as a body, that's how we are called to be. Loving others requires that we seek the best for others regardless of how it impacts me.